0: Okay, if you have a uh, Bible, turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, I apologize that um, that there's no room this morning, and uh, we're asking if we could blow out a couple walls in this old building, but they're saying no, so we're just going to go with that. Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 34 is our text. Let me read to you this, before we read uh, the text this morning, I'm going to read to you this... Um, Frederick Beekner quote about the Bible and reading the Bible. And I believe it's up on the screen. And it says this, when a minister reads out of the Bible, I'm sure that at least nine times out of 10, the people who happen to be listening at all hear what, hear not what is really being read, but only what they expect to hear read. And I think that is what most people expect to hear when they read the Bible, is an edifying story, an uplifting thought, a moral lesson, something elevating, obvious, and boring. So that is exactly what they often do here. Only that is too bad, because if you really listen, and maybe you have to forget that it's the Bible being read, and the minister who's reading it, there is no telling what you might hear. And the reason why I read that before I read the stories, because we're coming to the most common story in all the Bible. If you've ever been to church, you know the story. Even if you've never been to church, you probably know the story. Jesus feeding the multitude, feeding the 5,000, Jesus feeding a crowd of people with uh, uh, bread and fish. And everybody knows the story. It's so common that when I read it, you're like, oh yeah, I know the story. Jesus provides. Let's just pray and get on with this. So I want to read it to you, and I don't want you to expect what you're like, oh, I know what's going to happen next. But that you would actually listen and hear and see if God today might teach us something that maybe we never even thought of from this text. So, if you're there, Mark chapter 6, I'll read. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them, were going and recognizing them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So when they went ashore, he saw a great crowd, Jesus did, and he had compassion on this crowd because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things, and when it grew late, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them and said, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, what, 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 what are we going to do? Go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they came back and they found out and they said, we have five and two fish. And he commanded them to sit down in groups, of, groups on the green grass And they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave it to them, to the disciples, to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate, and they were satisfied. And they took up the twelve baskets full of bread and broken pieces of the fish and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were five thousand men." Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, come to this, this uh, fairly familiar story, I pray that you would fill it this morning with uh, a new sense of awe and wonder, that you are a miraculous God, that, um, that when you do miracles is not necessarily a violation of the natural law but, or natural order, the natural ways things are, but actually a restoration of them. That you're restoring things back to the way that they were. The way that you created us wasn't to feel pain or cancer or to be hungry or thirsty. One day, Lord, coming soon. And the new heavens and the new earth, you'll wipe away every tear from our eye. There'll be no more hunger or thirst or pain or cancer. One day, Lord. And so when you break into time and space, it's not like you're violating this law. You're just restoring things to the way that they will be. We thank you that your kingdom of God points forward that way. And we thank you that your kingdom of God God is amongst us right now in this city. And we ask, God, that we would be given eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray for um, just people in here that are just curious and coming to check this place out and uh, that they would see Jesus. We look to you, God. I ask that you would uh, help me to communicate this open... Uh, speak to my mind. Would you anoint my mind and my lips and my heart? And um, pray that we would leave with Jesus on our lips. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the, this book that we've been studying since we started uh, in January, this, the, the, all the pages of the Gospel of Mark are saturated with the story of Jesus. They're like dipped and saturated in the story. And we said a couple of weeks ago that. There's only one place in this entire book that's not about Jesus, and that was two weeks ago when we talked about Herod. When the narrative of Mark, Mark broke from the narrative of Jesus, who is the, the primary subject of this story. It's all about Jesus, the story of the real Jesus. And he breaks away briefly to talk about how John the Baptist died. He was actually beheaded at a wild birthday party of Herod, this ruler over the province of israel where jesus was actually ministering and herod was this pseudo king who, who who said he was king and promised half of his kingdom but couldn't deliver it at all so we took a step back to look at herod this tyrannical ruler and the question that herod had at the very beginning when 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 the narrative broke and went to herod the reason why mark went to herod was to pose this question who is jesus And then to look at that question through the lens of Herod. And Herod, a couple of his buddies said, well, he's Elijah raised from the dead. He's one of the prophets from old that's come. And then Herod thought superstitiously in a weird way that it's, no, 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 I know who it is. It's John the Baptist raised from the dead. John the Baptist who I beheaded. He's back. He's come back to haunt me. So that's who he is because Jesus and John had the same message. But Jesus had the same message now with this new, like, resurrection power and so herod was like well it's john the baptist raised from the dead who's come to haunt me and so but john or or, or, sorry mark never really answered the question about who jesus was he never answered he just left it hanging there he leaves the question to hang there in the entire section and no one answers it and the narrative now goes on from this wild drunken lavish incestuous feast of herod's to now a wilderness where there's green grass and a true shepherd feeding hungry souls with words and bread, this is a totally different kind of feast than Herod's. So Mark just contrasts these two feasts. The Feast of Herod, just a wild, crazy orgy. His daughter-in-law is doing this, this wicked like pole dance in front of all these drunken men. And, and John the Baptist's head ends up on a platter at the end of the story. And then it switches scenes now to a wilderness with green grass and hundreds and thousands of people and Jesus feeding them miraculously a whole different type of feast. And through this narrative, the question of who Jesus really is gets answered. And the way that Mark writes this section and, and the way that actually, this is the only miracle that every single, um, gospel writer records To Mark, it's very crucial. This story is very crucial in understanding the dignity and the identity of Jesus and who he is. So this is how we'll look at it this morning. How Jesus satisfies the seeker, and then we'll we'll extract our dependence in the midst of impossibility. So those are the two things that we're going to extract from this section. We're going to look at how Jesus satisfies the seeker and our dependence in the midst of impossibility. So the first point. How Jesus satisfies the seeker. When you look at Jesus in this crowd and as he's pulling up, what you see how Jesus interacts with this giant crowd and how he satisfies seeking hungry souls. The narrative of Mark now moves back to Jesus and his disciples. If you remember, uh, I think it was maybe four weeks ago now, we talked about Mark chapter 6, verse 7, when he sent out the disciples. In verse 7, it says this in Mark's gospel. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. So he sends out the disciples. Okay? Then the narrative breaks for a bit, but then it comes back. And now they're returning. It says at the very beginning of our story this morning, they're returning and telling Jesus all that they did and taught on their, cam- on their campaign. Now you can imagine that the disciples having Jesus' authority and power coming back from a very successful campaign of preaching, teaching, healing, exercising, not like working out, but like demon exercising. As they were exercising demons and casting demons out, they probably gained some cultural traction, some popularity. And so now the crowds keep growing bigger and bigger and bigger. And these, cro- and these disciples come back to Jesus who already has a crowd by himself. And now these other disciples gain a crowd because of their miraculous works and all these people start following them. And Jesus is like, you need to get away. You guys need a vacation. You need to rest for a bit. So come away with me, get into a boat, and let's go, and I'm going to take you to a place where you and I can rest. And they do, and they get into a boat. Well, the paparazzi find out about it, and they beat them there to the private retreat spot. The sea of Galilee is not that big of a, a, a lake or a sea. It's not that big. So you could see people going across it, and they see them going across, and they could probably guess, oh, they're going to land right there. So they all run, thousands of them, and the crowd keeps growing as they're running around the lake. It's probably a funny scene. I don't know. When Jesus shows up, it says he looks at them like sheep without a shepherd. They probably looked like literal sheep with their like white clothes or a couple of them with their brown clothes, and they're all just kind of following each other, running through the desert and trying to find where they're going to be, and the crowd keeps growing. Have you ever gotten to a line in San Francisco and not know where it leads, but you just get into it anyway? Like that sort of thing. Like you walk by Ike's. You're like, what's this line for? I don't know. I'm getting in this line. And then someone hands you a menu. And you're like, a sandwich place. This is awesome. Okay, I'll order a sandwich. Like that happens all the time. There's a line. And then you get right into it. Okay, we're sheep. So that's what this crowd is growing. Growing. It says there's 5,000 men. Now, that means 5,000 heads of households. So there's probably multiple thousands of people there. And the crowd keeps growing. And all around the region, people are coming. and And when Jesus pulls up, all these people are there, tons and tons and thousands of people are there. And it says, "They come to the shore, and all these people there, verse 34. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He saw this crowd, Jesus saw them, and he had compassion on them. This is the last thing. If you're on vacation and you're going to vacation and you show up, and all the people that you left at work were there, can you imagine? Like, I'm going on vacation, everyone at work, peace, I'm out. And you go to work, and, or you go on vacation, and everybody is there by the pool going, hey, we need your help here. They're like, no, I'm on vacation. Go away from me. You know, leave me alone. The disciples were probably thinking this, but Jesus never thought this. He gets on the shore, and he sees them, and he has compassion on them, and it says, because they were sheep without a shepherd. There's something way, way deep going on here. When he saw the crowd, it says that he had compassion. The Greek word for compassion in the New Testament is only used of Jesus. Jesus is the only one who has this type of compassion. Now, you and I have compassion. If you walk around San Francisco, you probably have, if, if you lived here for a very, like the first a year that you lived here, you have compassion. After that, you kind of go cold. Like, dude, just get away from me. I don't have any change. I only carry cards, that sort of thing. But your first several months, you have all kinds of compassion. And you're like, oh, they need this. Oh, they need, and then something happens in us. The kind of compassion Jesus has is different, and that's why it's only used of Jesus in the New Testament. It means this: it means he was filled with such pity, so inwardly moved that something has to be done about it. Like he sees somebody and he goes, something must be done about your situation right now. Something must be done. And that's what this means when he's moved with pity. It's like the man with the withered hand, if you remember, we talked about. In synagogue, this man standing up there with the withered hand, and Jesus looks at him, and he says, something must be done about his hand. Even though it's the Sabbath, and even though by me healing him, you guys are going to plot my death, something must be done. That's the kind of compassion Jesus has. Or the leper. When nobody was allowed to touch lepers, Jesus saw him, was moved with compassion, and he had to touch and heal this leper this is the kind of compassion jesus has something must be done like the demoniac the demoniac never asked for help remember we talked about that several weeks ago that man who lived in the tombs he never asked for help he was in gentile territory he was outside the territory of israel but he went there but jesus went there anyways because something had to be done now, Jesus isn't obligated by law to do something. We deserve the mess that we get ourselves into. But his nature as a compassionate God drives him to do something about our situation. He's on a rescue mission to seek and save the lost, to feed the hungry spiritually and physically, to teach and lead. This is the compassion that drives Jesus to act. And what makes this even more compelling is that Jesus wasn't going to the synagogue when he saw these people. He wasn't going on a missions trip necessarily when he saw these people. He was on vacation. He was on leisure with his disciples. So his mindset was like vacation mode. You know when you get in vacation mode, when you check out of work like five days early when you go on vacation? You go on vacation mode, and all you can think about is vacation. His disciples, even maybe Jesus, humanly speaking, was on, they, they were resting. But he sees sees these people, and he's moved with compassion. And he doesn't tell these people, hey, listen, this is not the time for this right now. He wasn't agitated. He wasn't mad. He's not like, this is not a good time for me. He sees them, and he's moved with compassion. And his compassion for these people doesn't grow out of an urgency of the situation. These people weren't physically lost. He wasn't like, um... They they weren't on the shore going, Jesus, we lost our way, and we were on our way to Jerusalem. We got lost. Could you help us? He's like, yes, go down the street, burning bush, make a right. That's where you go. That sort of thing. He wasn't doing any of that. These people weren't physically lost. He wasn't driven by their need because they were physically hungry either. That's not what the text means either. When he sees them as sheep without a shepherd, it has these Old Testament overtones, this echo of the promised shepherd that God promised in the Old Testament. It even has echoes of Psalm 23. I believe we read it during worship. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want, it says. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You notice what Mark said there? He goes, he sat everybody down in what? On green grass. Like these, has these overtones of this is the shepherd that Israel really is looking for. This is the shepherd that they want. Mark's like they, they sat him down on green grass and he satisfies them. Look what it says in, in Psalm 23. He makes them lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. There's water there as well, as you know. He restores or he satisfies my soul. What does it say at the end of this section of Mark? Everybody was satisfied. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This has these overtones like this is the shepherd that we've been looking for. This is the one. And what it means when it says that Jesus looked at them with a, like a sheep without a shepherd, it means that they didn't have a shepherd to love them. They didn't have a shepherd to lead them. They lacked order, guidance, leadership. They needed someone to guide them. They needed someone to care for them. They were hungry and thirsty for spiritual nourishment. They were straying and lost. They were like poor wandering sheep. They were, like many of us, in an untended spiritual state. Nobody was there to care for them. Nobody was there to lead them, to teach them, or to rescue them from the state they were in. Who was their king at this point? Right now, their king over the province of where they were ministering was king, pseudo-king, Herod. And what was Herod doing during this time? We just read that. Throwing extravagant parties at taxpayers' dollars, living in an ungodly relationship, and killing prophets. That's what Herod was doing. That was their pseudo-king, People wanted a true leader. They wanted a true king. And this is why Mark places this account right here, right after talking about Herod. Because Herod fed his lusts and brings death to someone he didn't really want to kill. He didn't really want to kill John the Baptist, but he had to, showing that he wasn't in control of anything. Jesus here is filled with compassion, feeds these seekers, and not just feeds them, but teaches them and leads them and satisfies seekers. Verse 41 says this, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he said a blessing, and he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate, and they were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied with two fish and five loaves. Thousands of people, this is a miracle. Now, every other Traditional religion starts like this. Man's untended spiritual state, and it tries to move man in his attempt to reach God. That's every traditional religion. That's why founders of every other major religion outside of Christianity is essentially teachers. They come as teachers. They're not saviors. They come to say this, do this and you will find the divine. Do this and you will reach a higher level of divine consciousness. Do this and you will have greater holiness. Do this and you can reach God. But Jesus came down. See how profound this is. He comes down. He came down primarily as a savior. Jesus says, I am the divine. Come down to you to do what you could not do for yourselves. So the Christian message is we are not saved by what we do or how high we climb the divine ladder, but by what Christ has done for us. He is our good shepherd who knows us, who knows that we are sheep, that we are in a lost state of need, and he leads us and he feeds us. And more than that, he says in John's Gospel, chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He came, Jesus came to die in our place as our substitute. To do what we could not do in trying to reach God. And trying and trying in vain to satisfy your soul. Can I tell you this? If you're trying really, really hard to reach God, would you please stop? You can't do it. If you're trying and trying to satisfy your soul, please stop. You won't be able to do it. You will destroy yourself and everyone else around you. Turn to Jesus. That is my job to tell you that. That is my call to tell you that. Turn to Jesus. The com- this is the compassion of Jesus who sees the need of humanity and isn't moved to simply write a check or to buy someone a meal. He is moved to the extreme, he's moved to die, to lay his life down for the sheep. Psalm 107 says, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul, he fills with good things. This is what God does through Jesus Christ. He satisfies the seeking and the longing soul. Okay, so the story moves on though, okay? We still have one more point. The story moves on, and now we see a little bit, when Jesus talks to his disciples, we see now a dependent in the midst of impossibility. Because as the the, the story moves on, it gets late. Jesus, it says, is on the boat, and he's teaching, and he's preaching, and he's teaching the crowd and doing all these great and wonderful things, and they're in the middle of nowheresville. They're in the middle of nowhere, and the disciples realize it's getting late, and people are getting hungry, and they make a rather reasonable suggestion. They say, Jesus... How about this? How about you send everybody away, just tell them all all to scatter, and they all go to the surrounding villages and get food for themselves, okay? The emphasis in Greek is on themselves. Get food for themselves. Everybody fend for themselves. Everybody go Dutch and get their own stuff, okay? So send them all away and have them go buy their own meal. And then Jesus makes a rather ridiculous request, and he turns to them and says, you feed them. Now, you is emphatic and imperative. The, the emphasis is on you. You feed them. You do it. And the reply in verse 37, quite bluntly and sarcastically, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? This is very sarcastic, very probably rude. Like, what do you want us to do? Do you just go buy food with thousands of dollars and put it together and feed everyone? Probably Peter. I don't, I'm, not, I'm just guessing. Maybe. <laughs> Probably Peter, just going, what, really, Jesus? Food for this many people. thousand pe- Thousands of people. You want me, us, to feed them. What are we going to do? You, remember you told us, you sent us out, you told us not to keep any extra money. Hmm? Hmm? What about that one? <laughs> we don't have the money, Jesus. And if we did, we can't put together a catering operation right now. It's late. So they'd they, they snap back at him. They're like, and I, I don't know, it could be the hunger talking. I don't Do you know those people that get hungry and they snap? you know, like everything's fine, everything's chill, you're hanging out with them, and then their stomach starts to grow out, and then they snap, they're about to eat you, I mean, they're, they just get angry, that could be what's going on right here, they could be like, we're hungry, and then no, Jesus, I'm, are you crazy, we can't feed everybody, so they look at Jesus, and they say, we can't do it, now, why would Jesus make such a very strange request, why would Jesus shoot back like that, going, hey, why don't you feed them?" Jesus knows that they can't feed them. Jesus knows that there's like thousands of people here and they're 12 guys and they don't have any money and they don't have, they just have like a couple fish and like some loaves and like the thin, like flat bread either, not like big, giant, you know, bread, just thin, small bread. And like there's no way. But Jesus asks them, tells them anyway, asks them anyways. You feed them. And they turn to him and they say, that's impossible, Jesus. You're crazy. We don't have enough money to buy this much food. And if we did, we couldn't pull it together. And Jesus says, and they say to Jesus, it's impossible. And Jesus says, exactly. That's the point. The need was way too big for them to meet. The disciples get swept away by the magnitude of the problem. There's too many people here, Jesus. There's too much need here, Jesus. We're not sufficient. We're inadequate. We can't do it. And Jesus was like, exactly. See, until you and I realize that what Jesus is asking us to do, what he's really calling us to do in this world, as followers of Jesus, to meet the needs in this world, to meet the needs in our jobs and homes and neighborhoods, the overwhelming huge needs of people, until we realize our absolute inadequacy for us to accomplish those things, we don't need God's power. It's not until you realize you can't do it. It's not until you realize I can't reach God. I can't be a good witness in my home. I can't really love this city the way that God wants me to love. I can't do it. Until you reach that point, you're going to try to do it in your own strength. I remember reading a a story of a, a missionary to India. And it was a young gal who, after graduating from seminary, was sensing a call by God to minister to orphaned and abandoned children in India. So she went on an initial exploratory trip there and wanted to experience the the sights and the sounds of India and confirm the direction of God leading her, if God was leading her to India. And she had this great, immense, awesome, compassionate love for India and the orphans there and the people that didn't have any for the battered women and the abused women and the orphans and had this great love there and went there. And she says this, says this in this book. However, after several days in India, Tammy was overwhelmed. The grinding poverty, endless rows of squatter houses, street children and beggars, corruption, idolatry, hopelessness and spiritual darkness were beyond anything she could have imagined. Lord, she prayed, I don't really like this country. It's too hard Yet I believe and I, that I felt your call here, and I'm confused. What am I going to do? And the book goes on and says that what Tammy realized, in all her human love and compassion she could muster up, was depleted in India in three days. Everything that she could muster up for that country, everything that she could, she could like well up within her, the orphans and the people, every, every bit of human compassion that she could muster up was gone in a matter of days. Gone. The reason why I remember this story, and I think about it often, actually, because this little story of this missionary, um, I read it in 2008, in January 2008, right after my first exploratory trip to San Francisco. I read it right after that. When God called my wife and I to move to this city to start a church, my initial reaction was no way. Now, not no way because we didn't like San Francisco. No way because it was San Francisco. No way because, Lord, you don't call people like me to a city like that. I will vacation there for the days. I'll live there, actually, but I can't start a church there. There's no way. And then I would tell the Lord, I would, the, the, the second I heard, I was like on the floor, just like, just, God, there's no way I can go there. Absolutely no way. And then, you get these memories, these reminders of Old Testament prophets or people in scripture, and you're like, Lord, this isn't a funny, cute Bible story. This is my life. I can't do it. I'm not a Bible character. I don't know if you know that, okay? I'm me, and this is not funny. Lord, I can't do this, and then After months and months of praying, I mustered up all the compassion and courage I could to come to this city. I'm like, okay, I'm excited. Like, this is going to be cool. So I came here on an exploratory trip with a couple pastors. Three days into it, I was absolutely consumed. I didn't even know if people parked in the city and how they parked. I I was so overwhelmed by, like, grocery shopping, like, how do you grow, how do you do anything? I can't, and all the need and all the people and everything, I'm like, I can't do it. And I was sitting in the pork store in the mission and my head was spinning. And my friend, Brett, actually looked across the hill from me. He's like, dude, are you okay? You look like you're gonna throw up, bro. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm, I'm fine. He goes, no, you're, you're white as, as a ghost. You, you're pale, like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I'm, I'm fine, I'm fine. Everything's great, everything's fine. I was, what I realized was, In three days, everything I can muster up, all the like courage and compassion and like passion for the city I can muster up was gone in, it was literally two and a half days. It was gone. And I was sitting at the pork store with my head spinning. And I come back, I go back home and I start reading this book and I came to this section of the book and God spoke to me through it profoundly. The book is called Ministry in the Image of God and it says this. If you rely on training, you accomplish what training can do. If you rely on skills and hard work, you obtain the results that skills and hard work, hard faithful work can do. When you rely on committees, you get what committees can do. But when you rely on God, you get what God can do. You see, see, I don't really think, and we fully rely on God until we realize the impossibility of things and our absolute need for Jesus. You will not, you cannot do anything until you've reached that point. Like, I can't do anything. I mean, think about it. Who's sufficient for anything? Who's sufficient to be a good, godly, loving spouse? Who's sufficient for that? I mean, we know ourselves best. I mean, we're all pretty much selfish idiots, right? If we all bullet it down, we're selfish. And marriage, you stand at the altar of holy matrimony. The altar. What happens at altars? Death happens. You stand at the altar and say, I, Dave Lomas, am going to die and I'm going to live to please my wife. Who is sufficient for that? If you're thinking about marriage, just know that. (laughs) If you are married, you're like, uh huh. It's death. Who's sufficient for that? Who's sufficient to really love their spouse self sacrificially? Who's sufficient to be a daddy? Or a mom, and we have some young dads and moms in this church. I don't talk to any young dad just about to have their kid and like, dude, when this child pops out, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be on it as a dad. I'm gonna have this dad thing down right away. No way. They're like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be a dad. I'm freaking out. Like, who's sufficient to raise a child? We thought about that. There's no way. Or who's sufficient to meet the needs of the world? Who's sufficient to meet the needs of our city? Do you ever walk around our city and go, how does Jesus do this? How do people come to know their need for Jesus? Who's sufficient for these things? Who's sufficient to embody the gospel in the world or in the city? Who's just sufficient to follow Jesus? Now, so that you know that I'm not being a pessimist here, I tend to be pessimistic if you guys know me, so that you know that I'm not being pessimistic here, Paul, the apostle Paul, when he was reflecting in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it says this, He was reflecting on how, as followers of Christ, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we are the fragrance from death to death, and the other, the fragrance from life to life. This is what he means. As followers of Jesus, to love and embody and proclaim the gospel, some people will hate it right away. They might even hate you and us. To it, to the gospel, it will smell to them like a dead rodent, but to the others, the gospel, the real gospel, and the real Jesus will smell like tuberose, or like freezer, or whatever flower they like. It will smell to them so madly attractive. The gospel will be crazy attractive to them, and then Paul realizes this. He has a sober moment. Who is sufficient for these things? Who can really do this? Who can really represent Christ in that way? Can you imagine if I put that trip on you? Hey, guys, people here in this city will either love Jesus or hate Jesus because of you. Because of you, people will either look at Jesus, the Savior of the world, like a dead rodent or fresh flowers. Have fun. Be warm. Be filled. Be blessed. <laughs> can you imagine that trip on you? Because of you, this city will like, either love Jesus or hate Jesus. Who's sufficient to bear the weight of the gospel, to take the gospel into our city? Some of you are thinking, "Uh, you are, that's why you're the pastor. And I'm thinking, I'm not, you are, that's why you're here. None of us are. And then Paul writes a couple verses later, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as from us, but our sufficiency is from God. It is when we realize the impossibility of what God is calling us to that we need God's help. And Paul goes on, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, and the spirit gives life. God makes us competent ministers, He makes us sufficient. He performs miracles in our job and in our home and with our families. He does those things. We are not sufficient in ourselves. He does these things. Now, side note. I have to say this because we just read this. The reason why Paul says the letter kills and the Spirit gives life is the letter is the law. And the law announces God's will but does not announce and does not grant the power to keep God's will. That's why the law kills And that's why telling people in this city to stop sinning is the worst message in the world, because you don't give them the power to do it. To walk around going, hey, stop sinning, stop doing this, stop doing that. You give them no power to do it. If I told you to do that, i give you no power to do it. The law kills. But the Spirit, the Spirit gives life. Why? Because it says the Spirit gives life because only the Spirit of God can change your heart change the motivation of your heart and the desire of your heart. Only the Spirit of God can give you the power to faithfully follow Jesus. So we proclaim and embody the gospel. We say believe in Jesus, repent and turn to him. He's the only one who can save you. He's the only one who can change you. He is the good shepherd who lived the life that we could never live and laid his life down for the sheep. See, that's what's really going on in this whole story. Is Mark is revealing to us who Jesus really is? In the previous section, we said, "Herod, raised this question that this hung there. Who is Jesus? And we said that Mark did not include the answer to that question, but left it instead hanging there, waited for it to be answered later, because he knew. And the next section, it's solved. It's solved right here. Who is Jesus? He's the one who has compassion. Jesus is the one who meets our needs. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. And running through this whole story is Jesus' awareness of human frailty. He knows how frail we are as humans. He knows when you're tired. He knows your needs. He knows the impossibility of the situation you might find yourself in. He's keenly aware of it. He knows you and he's the only one who knows how to meet those needs. Nothing and no one else can, only Jesus. So let's be wise this morning, and like this crazy crowd, let's go out of our way to meet with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, God, for your love and your compassion toward us, God. And we know it's, um, it's a little warm in here right now, and... Uh, our hearts might be heavy. We might just have just a crazy week behind us or a crazy, crazy week in front of us. But I pray that you would bring us all, every single one of us in here, to our understanding that it's the things that we are faced with are impossible. Some of us feel that way in our jobs. To keep going in our job is just so hard. Might feel that way at home or with our roommates. Oh God, we might just feel that way in trying to search for God. Like, it's impossible. We can't reach God. It's so impossible. Lord, we turn to Jesus. We see that you meet us, Lord, and you feed us, God. And we look at impossible situations, and we say, you're the only one that can. You're the only one that can use us to feed people. Thank you, God. So we turn to you right now with our minds and our hearts, and we ask, God, that you would save us.